0: Hi everyone, and thank you for checking out the Prima Materia podcast. I'm Pietro, and this is a collection of various classes, Zoom tastings, and a couple of other formats from the last uh, 18 months or so, where we have focused on discussing Italian grapes, what they're like uh, in the vineyard, growing them here in California, working with them in the winery, and various cultural aspects like food and even their place within the industry. If you want to check out our wines, please visit us online at wwwprima materiacom or if you are in the Bay Area, please come uh, visit us in Oakland or Richmond at our tasting rooms. So with that, let's dive right in.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The ham and cheese sandwich. Of, yeah. The okay. Uh, okay. Drink
0: it. Everybody, ready to uh, hit the final stretch here? And I'm moving a little bit slowly, so I, I'll try to speed up a little bit as well. Lunch is coming. Just coming. I'll send it to Chris. Oh, that would be Pretty great. Yeah, that would be
1: really yeah. nice. It'd be nice yeah. to see the colors. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that would be super. Thank you. Yeah.
0: No problem. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, so just quickly starting to move into that palate tactile zone a little bit. Um, I really think it's overlooked and not discussed enough in wine and in food in general. We know that generally, culturally, we like crispy, crunchy things, uh, chips. You know, the crispier, the better. Um, not all cultures share that. There are some that actually find that unpleasant. Uh, and we have certain predispositions to things we like in wine as well, especially when we're starting out that bigger, rounder, smoother, sometimes sweeter is a good entry point. And then things can sometimes become more interesting as you get a little more angular or move up the acidity chain. But describing how a wine feels is really difficult. I think we probably tend to converge in the middle on it. If you get 10 people together, but it really does seem to be a a difficult one that's not discussed enough. Um, You can sense a a hair in your mouth as a huge object that's incredibly unpleasant. And that's only like 30, 40 microns, baby. But imagine something a tenth the diameter of a hair, you can sense all of that on your mouth. It's amazingly sensitive for something that gets beaten up all the time. If you think about eating some crusty bread or something really high acidity, lime sprinkled on something else, um, there's a lot of abrasion, there's a lot of uh, just daily wear and tear that happens. So your taste buds are constantly sort of regrowing and regenerating themselves. And it seems like over time some do tend to diminish, um, but still... It seems to be a general rule, but I think the science is still out on exactly what's going on or why. They used to say that, you know, sweet, bitter, salty, very localized, very clear. And it does seem that there are clustering of these particular sensors in certain areas, but they really are distributed throughout the mouth, and there's more diversity to what's picking up on what than we all thought. Uh, as far as taste, you know, we also talk about, you know, there's sweet, salty, bitter, umami is the fifth taste. But that's such a limiting way to think about it except in very specific tastes. And even then, you like with wine, there can be a, a sensation of sweetness, tartness, sour, bitter, everything going on at once. And certainly there are even umami compounds from the yeast in there You can get like almost MSG-ish effects. Some wines can be incredibly not soy saucy, but like straight MSG, like electrical buzzing sort of mm-hmm. sensation. That's that's start. That's where we start talking about things like minerality at some point. Uh, very hard. To, oh yeah, there it is. Uh, very hard to put your finger on, but with enough practice, you know it when you see it. There, there's also like a smell of minerality, which is wet, rocky kind of thing. That's that's sort of a different use of it, but that's, that's one of the hardest ones to like really put a figure on. And we're still trying to figure out what it is in wine, also. But these are the things that I would think of when thinking about the tactile world. Oak can add a lot of spice. It's also adding polysaccharides and sugars that can create more body and a sensation of sweetness. Um, alcohol is very strange. Uh, it sort of is the magical compound in wine, if, if wine is 15, 85% water, 14% alcohol and 1% other, uh, which isn't quite accurate, but the alcohol is what really makes it largely what it is. Um, did a tasting of Cab Francs a couple of months ago with the new generation of 11% alcohol Cab Francs coming from all over this more lean, higher acid, very primary styles sort of in vogue right now. It was amazing how watery 11% alcohol red wine mm-hmm. It allowed other things to come up. The spice box effect was amazing. But it just had, no body there. Mm-hmm. They were all sort of shrill and hollow in a good way. A, a really interesting yeah. way. But alcohol is kind of the magic. It's, it's if you think about drinking alcohol alcohol, it's hot and cold at the same time. It's sort of mm-hmm. thick and thin at the same time. It has this like, continual dual nature that really does sort of sit at the center of wine. It's hard to think about. I've done some of the de-alcoholization tests that they, I don't think they're doing them quite as much now, the government changed tax classes. It used to be taxed a lot more on wine over 14% alcohol and less on wine under 14% alcohol. Mm-hmm. So big companies would de-alcoholize wine that was over 14% to get it under the tax, lower the tax burden. Um, And I've done the tastings of wines where it's 13.1, 13.2, 13.3, up to 15% the original wine. And it's not linear, it doesn't make any sense, but this one is spicy and beautiful, this one is full-bodied, this one is the winner and the one two either side of it are disjointed they're weird they're clumsy we don't know how that works but it seems like there are a few balance points in wine as a winemaker I know that the more you screw with that balance point the harder it is to get a balanced wine Mm -hmm. so ideally picking well grown grapes at the right time and treating them appropriately in the winery is like that's the whole game. That rarely happens, that you can hit all of those things, and weather, and labor, and all those issues don't intervene. But that's the goal, and that sort of magically somehow seems to get you to, to the balance in this. Um And the balance point for Pinot Noir versus Cabernet Sauvignon are gonna look totally different. There are some wines that are sort of intentionally unbalanced. Um, if you looked at, uh, if you're familiar with Barolo, from northern Italy, the king of, king of wines, uh, made of the Nebbiolo grape. It is color deficient, screaming high in acid, super heavy on tannin, has no mid-palate to it, and it makes one of the most sought-after wines in the world.
1: <laughs>
0: like, the numbers don't add up, but there's something about it that's beguiling and amazing and just unlike anything else. So, to each grape its own sort of ideal, and sometimes we're still discovering that, Uh, Barbera, uh, something we sell a lot of, do well with, Um, up until the 1970s hadn't even finished fermentation, had residual sugar, and was the same pH as lemon juice in Italy. There's no barrel aging. Uh, They were picking it so early that it couldn't even finish its secondary fermentation. And then you know, some French guys came up and they brought barrels with them from Bordeaux and all of a sudden Barbera became a great wine that's great for the everyday table. It's a new discovery. Old grape. So, sometimes we're still learning. Sugar is, plays a big role in some of this stuff. So, champagne styles from Brut to... I mean, you rarely see things down this category anymore. These used to be very, very sought after hundred, two hundred years ago, sweet, sweet champagnes, Mm -hmm. you know, that was before we had lots of processed sugar in desserts, though. It's a very special thing. Um, But this Mm -hmm. depends entirely on sugar and acid balance, how it's labeled, how you add sugar back before bottling. Prosecco, which is a different method, but kind of a similar product, in classic Italian style, it's back. So their version of dry of dry actually looks like sweet, and what's sweeter says dry. So Italian wine is the hardest to understand. Don't feel bad about that. I'm still working on it. Um, but sugar is there's always a little bit of sugar left in wine. We consider a wine technically dry if it's less than two grams of residual sugar. That's out of a thousand grams. So you're talking about like minuscule amount, and they're usually non fermentable sugars. It's not like super. Um, a lot of wines, especially those cheaper, easy-drinking wines, can have more sugar stuck in them. Something like Velvet Cupcake will be 12 grams of residual sugar. So over 1%. So, and that's that's just a stylistic choice. It makes it smoother, rounder, softer. The
1: so higher the sugar content, would that be the higher alcohol? Like you see on the label, I've seen well, 15. Yeah, you can you
0: can do the grapes or? riper some people. In California it's legal to actually add concentrate to boost sugar wow. back up. Ooh. So yeah, there's a lot of in large wine production stuff. A lot of it's left over from the fifties and sixties that you can do in California that you can't do in other areas of the world. So anything goes here. Doesn't mean that everybody does everything. Most of us don't do anything. But there are tools in the toolbox to do things. Uh, One of the most difficult things, going back to retail experience, is, and this is not your fault, this is culture's fault, fruitiness is not sweetness. Mm -hmm. So that's always when somebody wants a fruity wine, but then they actually mean something sweet and soft, parsing those together. um, They're two different things. So you can have a very fruit forward dry wine with no sugar in it, or you can have a sweet wine... It's actually not very fruity, those things both all exist, but if you're in the shop asking for wine, don't be afraid to separate into, I want something with a little sense of sweetness, or I want something with a lot of fruit, because they're, they're different. Uh, and Champagne and Riesling, they depend on sugar-acid balance, and it affects how they, how they present themselves. Let's try the first one. Uh, Yes, starting at the left, the white, on the left. I haven't had this one before. Yeah, that's right. So maybe not a world apart from the first flight of whites, but a little bit different though, yeah? Yeah. Anything jump out? Descriptor-wise? Still seems on that yellow fruit kind of spectrum. But there's a little bit of like. Sometimes it's guava or star fruity. This has a little bit of like. Oh, this would like this would be the worst descriptor in the world. We sometimes we say phenolic, but like vitreously herbal like a granularity on the nose. I, that's, I know, it's just getting worse,
1: <laughs>
0: Yeah. Let's try it. <laughs> hmm, palate's different. Definitely more narrow, right, than the whites in the prior flight. That makes sense. Uh, so this is Sauvignon Blanc. I wouldn't. It's a twenty sixteen Sauvignon Blanc, so it has a little bit of bottle age to it. So I, I don't think it's too primary, but I think the palate shows Sauvignon Blanc like more focused, higher acidity. Like yeah. The acid's a little bit higher, right? You feel that it's a little it's more narrow not and constricted.
1: Not like yeah. Acidic. It's
0: just yeah, yeah. We're warm here, so some like if you drink Sancerre or French Sauvignon Blanc, it can be. I actually, I don't like them. They are too much for me. They are so, like, lemon acid and cut grass and, like, it's all 90-degree angles in the wine. They are super intense. But Sauvignon Blanc is something that has come to California and done okay making a different style in warm climates. But I would never say, there are very few that are round and smooth. It's more of a crisp, lean wine. It's a good food wine. If you need to pair something with a salad, Sauvignon Blanc is often a good, a good place to go. Um, so a good example of a little bit higher acidity, not crazy high, but more than the first white. And sometimes that's the difference between somebody saying old world, Italian, French in particular, because most Francophiles forget Italy exists. Um, it usually means cooler climate, higher acidity. And, and that even, that's even true for the Reds. It's not a very good way to describe things. It's kind of like old world. They, they grow wine everywhere, the same grapes everywhere. So it's broken down a little bit, but people still use that term. If that was a red with a high level of tannin, then you would be sort of in the astringency category, which is when things start getting unpleasant. When like the acid and the tannin is sticking to your palate and it won't let go. That's when you need to eat something that's protein laden, like cheese or roast beef, something like that. Nuts can help, um, because those tannins bond to proteins. You can get them to kind of bond to something else and get them out of your mouth. But acidity is super important. All wines need to have some acidity. And even a super soft, generous, fruity wine is still gonna be more (laughs) acidic than most tomatoes, just for a point of comparison. So think tomatoes with no sweetness to them.
1: I've got a question. Yes. The first three, to me, for myself, mm-hmm. they were more sour, and it made me like I was sucking on a lemon more. Mm-hmm. But you said this is more acidic than the first three.
0: For me, I don't it have lab information to know. Interesting. So we did. Uh, I did a class at the tasting room not too long ago, and. Like with that first wine, I added acid to a rosé that I had made. And all the people there, the more acid I added to the rosé, the sweeter they thought it was. And there was something about the way that wine holds the acidity or whatever the balance of acidity in it was, that the more tartaric acid I added to it, the more sense of sweetness there was on the front of the tongue. So it's not like just acid is acid and it's either high or low there's there's our perceptual difference mm-hmm. and then there's sometimes high acid seems sweet sometimes there's like a little hit of savory sweetness on the front of it too
1: I'm so I can
0: certainly understand that
1: When you talk about mid palate or I mean like what happens because I notice it's different on the tip of my tongue mm-hmm. and then in the middle and then, in the, and then yeah. later on the back yes how does that how does that happen
0: that's part of the magic Uh, as far as the actual science on the acid level different acids dissociate at different places on your palate so you get tartaric up front malic which I think this probably still has malic acid in it unlike the first one Um, and that's that's more like the granular edgy acidity that I'm pretty sensitive to Um, and then on the back uh, you get lactic acid that's when it
1: really goes Yes. And you know, yeah. you feel, um, you feel
0: that yeah. pain. And, and there are a bunch of other acids in yeah. wine too that form during fermentation and you can get it at different places and they're not always the same, it's the interaction of a bunch of different things just- so it's hard to say that like, you get this thing here and this thing there um, yeah, good question uh, tannin, so we've talked a lot about tannin uh, big, basically just a molecular shape Um, but there's, we talk in the winery, dry tannin, green tannin, sweet tannin, melted tannin, Mm -hmm. Napa Valley is famous for sweet tannin, where there's like a lot of it, but it's rounded over into a velvety, like lots of small nubby surfaces kind of thing. Uh, different grapes are predisposed to different tannin sensations and feelings coming out of them. Um... And tannin interacts with other things in the wine, with oak, with residual sugar, with acidity. On the winemaking side, the more tannin you have, the less acid you want in the wine. So that's why something like Cabernet is one of the last things we harvest in the season. You want that grape to get more mature mature, and that acidity softens the longer the grapes are on the vine. It's sort of the magic equation there is timing that. That's where your pit time comes in and sun exposure. Uh, Interesting to think about, two different types of tannin. We say, in general, that skin tannin is soft and supple. Seed tannin is coarse and gritty. So when you're fermenting the grapes, there's sort of another race going on in the fermenter between extracting the purple, like softer softer skin tannin. And then as the alcohol (laughs) goes up, it starts to break down the seed coat and you start getting the catechin out of these. And then you get more of, like, rustic back-palate tannin. So, yeah, another, you're tasting sometimes every <coughs> few hours. Like, press it now, take it off now. Um, so I, we have a great called Negro Amaro. It does not seem to have, really, any tannin in the skin at all. So I wait until I start getting just what I would call modest, rustic tannin on the very back of the tongue. Press it then, it needs that little bit of texture, Um, just trying to get the timing right. So, and going back to corks, oxygen works with tannin, they interact and they sort of melt over time a little bit. So if you do a barrel tasting, it's something I just put in barrel last week, and I just did some retail friends on this, like, they were all, are you sure that you didn't screw this up? Like unless you're familiar with the whole trajectory of a long-aging red it can be very weird and awkward for the first year then 18 months down the road you're like oh it's soft it's, it's right, it's the right time to bottle So, and also decanting wine something that's really tannic and kind of unpleasant break out the decanter it's a fun excuse uh, you, can, you can get rid of any uh, potential uh, issues with sediment also some wines really benefit from it.
1: A yes. So on the whites, and whites are generally, I, mean, I understand the reds decant. Mm-hmm. What do you do on the whites?
0: There are occasional issues with whites. I think I mentioned reduction with Chablis. There are some cases where decanting a white can help loosen it up. One thing we do in the shop when we think something is reduced, you can pop the cork. And this is like the least classy thing you can do, but we'll actually pop the cork, give it a couple shakes, an extra swirl in the glass, and see if it shifted. And sometimes it will, like right there, just from just from doing that. Suddenly it will soften up. Maybe if there's a little bit of sulfury stinkiness, it can blow off immediately. It'll happen pretty fast if it's beneficial. Uh, but off the top of my head, thinking of decanting whites, like maybe a couple of. Chablis things, generally warm climate whites don't, I would not decamp them, but it's, yeah, try it to, but see if it clicks.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the, the ice
0: bucket's always fun, but that's not always practical for home. Um, yeah, I'm actually a big believer, just because I'm lazy, I, I'll just pop the cork and leave it in the refrigerator or on the counter before I start making dinner. And for me, I'm actually, I just because I'm a winemaker, I want to see how it evolves in the glass. That, for me, is part of my enjoyment with the wine. So I'm not as fixated on, like, getting it into the right place because I'm willing to sit there for 45 minutes swirling the glass and see what it does. So, and glass swirling is another way to, you know, kind of, the glass. You know, just kind of get comfortable with that. It does... Work some oxygen in and release some aromatic things. Um, eventually, you know, they'll just sit there swirling. It becomes kind of compulsive.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Sometimes embarrassing when you're with the wrong crowd. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then it's another thing to practice, though, and you'll, you'll get a little more aromatic lift from it. Do
1: you have an opinion about the aerators that you can, you know,
0: stick wine bottle? And- I know people that have had good success with them. I don't have any of them. Just be, uh, because
1: he likes to swirl. Yeah. No. I'm
0: trying to think. I, I know a couple tasting. I've seen some tasting rooms use them, with I think wines that are probably you know a little bit extra tannic or maybe they have a little bit of stink. That could be a good fast way to do it. I just don't have experience with it. So. Um, but talking about mouthfeel. Bigger smoother is not necessarily better; just depends. Uh, But wines do have their their innate balancing point. As case in point, this is a Cabernet Sauvignon. Let's give it a swirl and see what I think. This is the Lake County's most planted red grape. I think there might be more Sauvignon Blanc acreage, but. Most of the south the Red Hills area is mostly cabernet.
1: Mm.
0: Mm. (laughs) Moving into darker fruits, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely plum.
0: There's all one of the things I like about Cabernet though is that there's always like a little bit of lighter red fruit hiding behind the darker stuff though. Which gives it a little bit of tension. I think that's something Lake County does well with. Little bit of spicy stuff in there, too, though, right? Almost like nutmeg. It's probably, I get a little bit sometimes with Cabernet, you'll see cassis. That, that little bit of like, have I eaten cassis? I'm not sure. But it's sort of purple fruited, but not quite plum, but not quite violet. That kind of thing. So this. Let's go ahead and taste it. A little bit chewy, but in a good way. With a plate of food, this would make a lot more sense. What would
1: you serve with this? What kind of
0: food? Well, wines like this, I mean, the easy way would be a steak, grilled stuff.
1: I think mm-hmm. lamb is I kind of delicate. So, actually, almost too, oh, yeah, and I
0: think this just has enough nuance to work with lamb. I do think lamb is easy to cover up with too big a wine, though. But I think mm-hmm. this one would work. I think, of like, some, or even something like a stew, oh, yes. stewed Moroccan thing, mm-hmm. something mole ish, like mm-hmm. chocolate mole could be kind mm-hmm. of interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I actually think grilled vegetables can be a lot of fun in big too. I think, I think there's a lot of flexibility with that, because you have the same sameness from the grill, but then you have a whole different element. It so, so this is from one of Lake County's highest elevation vineyards, uh, Obsidian Ridge. I, this should be on the, if you want to buy a bottle, I think it's on the wine list here.
1: Um, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah.
0: Obsidian Ridge. And these folks, they import their own Hungarian oak barrels. Yeah, so they're not using French. They're not using American oak, both of which have kind of a particular profile. Hungarian sort of brings the two together, where it has some of the subtlety and a
1: little
0: little bit of the clove and cinnamon. It's kind of spicy, Uh, but it doesn't have as much coconut, vanilla, and maple as American oak. It's a little more subtle and kind of blends with the wine one. Yeah. This is 2016, so it's had a little bit of time, but could definitely still go for a while as well. The, I could see the tannin softening and it kind of shifting from fore palette to the the back of the palette. I, I would guess that more of the dark fruit flavors would come up and maybe like a loamy earthiness. That's something I would look for. Yeah, it's a good one. This is one of my favorites. Um, and a good example, uh, you know, half a mile up, <laughs> super rocky hillside, um, and good winemaking. So. But still, varietally correct. But there's something uniquely Lake County-ish. There's a little bit of mineraliness on the finish if we start throwing that word around. Um, and this is 14 and percent. So not off the chart high. You gotta remember 50 years ago, everything was labeled 12 and a percent. Wasn't necessarily 12 and percent. Yeah, no, if, if it's labeled 12 and it could be 11 or it could be 13.9. Yeah, a lot of it was laziness. A lot of it was less ripe, too. I grew up in the 70s on a vineyard, or amongst other things. But when we picked grapes, we were trying to hit, let's see, for the whites, it was 21 bricks, which is like 11.5% alcohol. And then the reds were 23, which would be like 13%, 12.9%. And it was going to a massive red blend jug wine, and they were just using that sort of sugar level as a way to guess <coughs> what the ripeness was like. We're much more precise about this stuff now. Um, wines have gotten bigger, bolder, heavier, fuller bodied. Um, but to me, this is a good example of doing that the right way.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
0: yes. the alcohol does not stick out to me. It's not clobbering no, well, me over I the head. So, but it but it, it's definitely California but it definitely echoes like Bordeaux Cabernet a little bit too. So, I think it's respectful that way. Um, if, when you're making a big red like this, definitely think about The more alcohol you have, the more those oak flavors come forward. So you have to be cautious with that. And sometimes it can be hard, really high alcohol grapes don't like to ferment all the way. If the fermentation struggle a little more and sometimes you end up with a little bit of sugar left in there. That's one of the ways that happens. And oak really is kind of a new thing. It's a Bordeaux thing. uh, Spirits uh, just north of Bordeaux, Cognac, Armagnac, those were other barrel aging places where they would distill the grapes down, age them in barrels for 10, 12, 15 years. But oak flavors weren't really used broadly in wine 50 years ago. It's a new thing. Which is crazy because I can't imagine operating a winery without oak barrels. Without this 60 gallon size that you're gonna see in every single winery you go into. Now I dream of having huge Slovenian oak casks like they do in Italy, but they're not going to impart much flavor because it's different surface volume. And the wine will have to age for like another two years. In those. So this also allows product to kind of turn over and get your wine out sometimes you know if you're making pinot you can bottle while you're harvesting the next vintage it it works um oak can be overused though and it can kind of obscure or help to hide grapes that aren't already resting and like a good american the first couple times i tasted high oak wines i thought wow i really like this and then it's sort of like the magic trick where you're like i know what's going on here it's just vanilla and spice to uh cover I,
1: I read that some of the cheaper wines are actually adding like chips and. Milk yeah.
0: To which, which, if you're gonna do it, is good because making a barrel is wasteful. the The, the forests are being managed better now, oh, but see. it's you should mm-hmm. use everything if you're cutting down a tree. Mm-hmm. So there's something to that. You
1: mentioned earlier about using used barrels. Previously, mm-hmm. used barrels versus new. Yeah. Is some kind of cleaning process? Oh yeah, Uh,
0: lots of cleaning, pressure washing, steaming, uh, bigger wineries, steam clean or ozone clean, we don't have that, so I use powdered hydrogen peroxide. And every year I go through a heavy, like I'm really trying to keep, there are two routes. You can either embrace your microbes. I know wineries that don't allow any cleaners to be used in them because they're trying to culture their own indigenous microflora and hopefully that imprints the wine. Beneficially, not negatively. That's an old world kind of new artisanal way of looking at it. I'm scared to do that. Mm -hmm. So I kind of take the other approach. I like having a little more control because there are already enough things out of my control. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if I was making wine in a cave underground in Croatia, like my family had been for 400 years, Mm -hmm. or these German cellars that have like kombucha and mushrooms growing out of the, Mm -hmm. the ceiling, Those exist, and they make really unique wine, and it adds something to it. That's where the scientists come in with DNA fingerprinting all these different yeast and fungi. And Mm -hmm. wine is weird. It's like cheese. Again, Mm -hmm. those little things, how it's aged, some of that gets in the wrapper. They all have an effect.
1: So once you sterilize and clean the barrel, do you have to let it rest, or can you use that season?
0: Oh yeah, you can. You want to use. A, an empty barrel is a dangerous barrel. Okay. You always want to have something in it.
1: What about like, using bourbon Well, that's
0: become a new thing. So you get a little like extra brown sugar and those kind of things. It makes sense. I get it. It's not quite what I'm looking for. Um, my grandfather, from what I hear, I didn't know him, but he liked whiskey barrels for his homemade plonk, which was notoriously terrible. something something to that big bowl you know cover some stuff up whiskey whiskey barrels are charred right yeah oak barrels are charred too but you specify light toast medium toast medium plus toast long convection fire toasted toasted heads untoasted heads Um, a lot of different variations and then you pay for tighter grain (laughs) two-year aging three-year aging five-year aging um, each one's a little, a little something, but it has an effect. Um, and we, had, we talked about balance, so I'm just going to scream through the couple more things here. Blending, some areas blend, some areas don't. I am, I was going to say I'm agnostic on blending, but I'm actually not. Just the way I interact with wine, I like single varietals. It's what I focus on, I want to like, really get into something blending has its place. There's great blending, like Burgundy, building the perfect wine, and then there's blending to cover things up, or to build out a lacking mid-palate. We do that too. Um, you can blend a little bit from past vintages in, but not too much. Sometimes a little bit of aged wine will help soften things up. Uh, but for the most part, vintages are, it's gotta be like 90% from vintage. Um, history. This goes back to history. It just in Barolo, they have not blended. Now, there's sometimes there's some secret blending, like, what's this grapevine in your Nebbiolo vineyard? And actually, there were, uh, yeah, sometimes these historical vineyards have lots of weird stuff in them. And sometimes they magically seem to benefit the final wine, which is labeled under, there's Zinfandel from Sonoma Valley that is 24%, 19 other grapes. It's just how the vineyard was planted over time. Doesn't
1: it have to be like 79% of the main grape to be labeled? If it says the county,
0: usually it's 75%. And then if it specifies the AVA, like Rutherford or Green Valley, then it has to be 85%. So it kind of goes up the ladder. France, Italy, Spain, they all have similar... Usually it's not a case that anything goes. California is kind of the only place where... Well, no, Like I shouldn't say that, because in Portugal, they've blended in northern Portugal for a long time, and have 50 different things interplanted. They pick them at the same time, and make fantastic wines, and some areas, kind of like it needs to be 30% this, other areas are like, it's not our history. So, it just varies. Um, I don't think one is necessarily better than the other, but don't let somebody tell you blends are always better. <laughs> if I hear that again, crazy. Um, but that said, there's a lot of quiet, under-the-radar blending. Um, the last wine that we have not smelled, you don't need to taste, but go ahead and give it a smell. And this is corked wine. Yeah, so when somebody says that something is corked, this, this is the first wine again, but with a little bit of the TCA, the, the corking compound added to it.
1: Yeah, so
0: yeah, feet, wet basement, wet dog, damp newspapers, yeah, old moldy books. And it is related to mold type compounds. So we are super, super sensitive to the smell. This is in the parts per trillion yeah. oh, that we're sensitive to it. Um, unfortunately, about 2% of all quarks have some of this in them. It's getting better and better, it's the cork is natural.
1: Yeah, exactly. Good. Yeah. And if you ever
0: get something like this, take it back, yeah. send it back. Yeah. Oh. And even I, like, I, despite my restaurant background, I'm not the person to raise my hand and say I don't like this. Um, but a wine shop, unless it's like a $500 trophy mm-hmm. bottle, if it's off, they'll swap it out. We don't tell you that but take it back, get a new one. <clears throat> From the producer side, don't judge the producer just because the cork is bad. But hopefully that's what's wrong with it. So if you get that damp, musty smell, probably cork taint, take the bottle back or send it back. It won't
1: hurt you if you drink it. No, there's,
0: there's nothing that can hurt you that, will ex- that can exist in wine. The, there's just too much acidity. So. A couple other things to be aware of. Sometimes vinegar comes up. Get a little like up the back of the nose, kind of like Whoo! kind of thing. That's a defect. There's always a little bit in wine, but too much is too much. Ethyl acetate is the nail polish smell. Those are actually related. So sometimes if you have one, you have the other. That's bad winemaker. So and I've had that happen to me too, just a bad barrel, thumb in a barrel. Sometimes it evolves. Um, I mentioned Britanamyces earlier. That's that horsey it's caused by a yeast that lives off residual sugar, either in the barrels or in the wine. And it goes in two directions. It goes into either smoky, charred, horse-stable, grilled sausage kind of side, or plastic band-aid is the classic descriptor. I'm having a hard
1: time with horsey grilled sausage. I know, because there's, there's good horsey grilled <laughs> sausage, and then there's bad I mean, horsey I mean, I mean, you know, Being a horse person, you know, I don't
0: really like the idea that you're going to grill the horse. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> To me, well,
1: horsey a horsey smells something, and
0: grilled sausage smells like something else. Yeah, because horses, horses don't really Horsies smell. I mean, like hay. Oh, yeah, they, oh, yeah, they, they, they
1: smell do. sweaty and barnyardy. Okay. okay. I yeah. should
0: just say barnyard.
1: Okay. Barnyard.
0: barnyard. barnyard. Yeah. yeah. think wet sheep and yeah. oh, yeah. follicles, yeah. but not as cute. Um, H2S, and sometimes that gets into that reduction category where they can be a little bit of that, a little bit oh. eggy like overcooked egg. Um, And some of these things always exist at some level in wine, but you just want them below the sensory threshold. One big thing that has come up if you start exploring natural wine is mousiness, which is a lactobacillus byproduct. Uh, What happens is you taste the wine, everything's going fine. Like, yeah, it's actually pretty good. About 10 seconds later, you get this shrill piercing sensation up the back of your nose it's like a metallic uh, and it's called mousiness because it's like a urine soaked mouse cage oh, yeah I've heard wow. and
1: yeah and that's that's a
0: lack of sulfur kind of thing which keeps that particular bacteria from, from happening so it's, it's unfortunate I actually had that happen with the bottling recently because I was pushing sulfur free too far
1: what's the saran wrap Uh,
0: Sometimes, if you have a corked wine, you can wad up saran wrap, put it in the wine, and it will suck up some of that. It also sucks up some of the aroma compounds, too, unfortunately. Like, electrostatically somehow bonds with it. You can kind of salvage something into a drinkable... Like, there have been a couple times I've taken bottles to restaurants. It's like, uh, I've been sitting on this thing for eight years. It's like, bring me some saran we'll get through this. Um, but it's always diminished after, but it does seem to knock the moldy basement smell down. <laughs> it's a last ditch kind of thing. Um, and should we go to lunch? There are some, the last couple of pages have some pairing notes. Um, um, pairing is a, like a whole talk unto itself. Two different ways you can go. Play it safe. What grows in the area goes with the food. Or think about things counterpoints. I want spicy savory with my bland food. I want to do Riesling with steak, things like that. Sometimes I want port with my blue cheese. And it's actually a counterpoint, but they're amazing together. So it's a good, if you're gonna practice it, start out with the safe kind of pairing. Like goes with like, Smoky Zinfandel with barbecue sauce, grilled ribs. That's good sometimes down the road though you can do a little bit better and do something a little more exciting and bounce things off of each other so that you're brightening up one aspect or the other so there's a lot of flexibility there but pretty much yeah when in doubt drink champagne or go a little bit sweet and basically if it's a good wine it's going to be good but if you're trying to pair a bad wine you better work with it so work with the food build the food to distract from the wine you know, there are ways you can place that puzzle. is there an easy yeah. rule of thumb of
1: saying, like, reds go like that content of things? Yeah.
0: I think that's pretty traditional. Um, I think you can get reds to, vegetables are kind of the unexplored territory here. I think the grilling broccoli from last night, you can probably get reds to go with that. A lot of that brassica stuff, yeah. When you start adding caramelization and charring and maybe some toasted garlic, then you're kind of moving, you're adding things that build body and character and can start moving up the ladder a little bit. But I think experiment, and then we're going to get into that personal variability too. So, for me, salads and high-acid whites are always scary. Vinaigrettes, like they always freak me out. And usually you can get uh, a... Surprisingly, a round-bodied white wine to pair with a lot of salads. I just discovered, I didn't know. I, I was reading the books too closely. Something about those like heavier Chardonnays and Rhone whites can work really well, kind of counterpointing the acidity in the vinaigrette. And then hold their own, because they have a lot of flavor. So, that's my, my tip of the day. And with that, I think it's lunchtime. Thank so, you very much. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, thank you. And if, if for any reason you have a, a burning question that I didn't get to, uh, just ask Chris or email it, Chris can, well, email it to Chris. Or I have business cards up here. You can email me yeah. directly. Can you stay for lunch? Uh, I'm going to check in on a fermentation. And then, it's then the, we'll see. Then they can, uh, ask me a direction. Yeah, that's true. I will try. <laughs> this is the tough time of season. Guys. Yeah. Seven-